Let's open the word of the Lord for a final time, at least for a while, to the book of Joshua, chapter 6, and if you'll find verse 20. This is our last look at this book until we come back for the fall. Uh, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, our summer preaching series will start on the book of James. But we're going to get Jericho finalized this morning. We've been here a long time looking at all of the events surrounding the fall of Jericho, and we come to a last look this morning at how the Lord caused the walls to fall and what that means for the covenant people. We last left this episode as the walls fell. The Lord did fight for his people. He proved to be true. He was delivering them into the land that he had given them from the time of Abraham. The city was there fully conquered by the power of God and all glory and honor would go to him. And there's a major point of connection that we identified last week between the old people, the old covenant people of Joshua's day and you and me here today. And that point of connection, that larger point of redemptive connection is that the story of the conquest of Jericho is our story as well. It is the story of Christ and his church. The fall of Jericho is the most impressive picture and illustration of our own salvation. And our own salvation has been solely accomplished by God. There is no one else to share credit with. It has been done by God. As surely as the Lord brought down the walls of Jericho and delivered his people, he has delivered you and me. And he's done it by himself, by his power, by his word, and by his spirit. And like the people of Joshua's day, We are also marching to Zion. We are on our way home. We are also entering the land that he has promised to us. The new Jerusalem is on the horizon. The new heaven and earth will soon come. We're on our way there. And while we're on our way there, we are engaged in a fight. For Israel would move from Jericho to fight other enemies. And we, too, are engaged in a fight. The New Testament makes this explicit. You can think of these verses that you know so well. We, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of the present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And as we walk towards Zion, as we anticipate our entrance into the heavenly city, we destroy, as Paul says, every lofty opinion every argument, we take thought, or rather take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We stand in the strength of the Lord. We are clothed in the armor of Jesus. We are the children of light, armed with the sword of the Spirit. And so this passage from Joshua has everything to do with you and me. But there are other important points of connection as we connect the dots from the Old Testament to the New. And there are two very special points of connection to make this morning as we survey the debris of the fallen walls of Jericho. Those major points of connection can be identified by two simple words. The first is the word judgment, and the second is the word mercy. And as I read the passage to you, listen for those points of connection Listen to those themes that play out as Joshua 6 comes to its conclusion. Verse 20, the word of the Lord. So the people shouted 
And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all that belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. The word of the Lord. May the Lord richly bless its proclamation and its hearing. Let's first consider, consider the theme of judgment. Judgment. The point of connection to you and me. Judgment. There's no two, two ways about it. As you read this passage this morning, it sends chills down your back. It is, it is emotionally difficult. It is intellectually vexing to read, to read a passage like this. It is to passages like this in the Bible that many a skeptic has turned to condemn the teachings of the church, to condemn the teachings of Christianity, even to shine the light of shame and moral deficiency upon the gospel and and those who worship the God that we worship today. It's a troubling passage for sure. We need to be very quick to declare that we should never come to a passage like this one with anything less than a broken heart and appropriate sadness. There there is joy here. We're going to get to that at the end. But before we get there, there is the terrible reality of God's judgment. The episode of the conquest of Jericho and the tumbling down of the walls and the annihilation of the people demonstrates the terrible sinfulness of the human race. It doesn't show a deficiency in God. It shows a deficiency in us. This is a passage about judgment. The falling walls of Jericho show us the awful certainty that God, at the end of the day, will have the final word. Indeed, Scripture is true. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's our point of connection. The story of the fall of Jericho is a a story in microcosm all unto itself. It's a small city by modern standards. It is well fortified. And yet by the mighty power of God, it comes under judgment. In the falling walls of Jericho, God is displaying His perfect justice. 
And again, we have to come to this passage not, not in abstract. We have to remember what has been happening for 400 years before the walls fell. Do you remember what God told uh, his, his people Abraham? you remember what he had, he had said to them repeatedly? I am being merciful to those Canaanites for 400 years until you get there. I'm going to wait until their iniquity plays out. I'm going to give the Canaanites, the inhabitants of Jericho, I'm going to give them four centuries to repent. We cannot forget that even to the Canaanites, even to the residents of Jericho, the Lord had proven himself to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But eventually... The time for repentance ran out. The clock of God's mercy that had been ticking for 400 years finally reached midnight. And the Lord will not extend His mercy one more second. Sinners will get exactly what their sins deserve. And when God judges them, his judgments will not be excessive or out of proportion. The judgment will fit the sin perfectly, and that's the case here in Jericho. Uh, There's nothing excessive here. It's what sinners deserve. And there's judgment. And it's awful. We've already looked at how before the walls fell, the citizens of the city seemed to huddle behind their walls, trusting in their walls, showing the futility of the unrepentant, unregenerate mind. They sought shelter from the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful God behind the walls that they had made. And in verse 20, those walls very quickly and seemingly with ease fall down flat. For what are man-made walls in the face of divine omnipotence? How foolish is the thought that people, that sinners can protect themselves and insulate themselves from the judgment of God. Oh, the the way those walls fell so easily should be a a lesson to to all sinners that there, there are no walls high enough or wide enough or deep enough or strong enough to keep the Lord God away. Those are flimsy defenses in His sight. Omnipotence can never be thwarted. Every unrepentant sinner, every person who has ever rejected the mercy of God will be found and judged, even if you live behind the walls of Jericho. Every human being will be summoned before the eternal bar of sovereign justice to give an account of everything, every word, every thought, and every action. And if that sounds offensive to you, listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And that day of judgment that Jesus spoke of first came to Jericho. The reality of judgment must, my dear brothers and sisters, be a vital component of the church's message. We must preach and believe that God will judge. The church will never be faithful to her Lord. The church will never know true success in terms of the fulfillment of her mission if she doesn't announce what God announces, if she doesn't tell the whole truth. 
You can think of the way the early church preached the gospel. And with all due respect and love, they didn't put up banners around the city that said God loves you no matter what you've done. They didn't only speak of God's love. Here is a snippet from one of the first Christian sermons ever preached publicly. It was preached by Peter. And he says, in defense of what he's doing, in defense of preaching on the street, in defense of announcing the gospel, he says, and he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And we have to preach that. The Apostle Paul, as he trains Timothy for the ministry by way of a couple of letters he wrote him, He tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, to preach the word. Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead. Again, the Apostle Peter, as he writes to the suffering churches of Asia Minor, in his first epistle, he says, The world that is persecuting you, the world that is making you suffer will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Walls or no walls, payday is coming to your town and mine. But there's something else about this judgment that is very difficult. Maybe it is the most difficult. We see the complete judgment of God. His judgment is comprehensive. It is total. There are no exceptions. There there are no loopholes. There's no one immune. There's no one excused. The destruction is total. Notice in your text, verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. All in the city, both men and women and young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, they destroyed them all with the edge of the sword. And then verse 24, they burned the city with fire and everything in it. And that is hard to swallow. If they weren't already, our emotions now are beyond the breaking point. Our minds, our finite minds affected by the fall or being stretched and blown circuits are now the result. And yet, here's the text of the Word of God. All the inhabitants of the city, young and old, are killed by the sword, wielded by God's people. If that were not enough, as if to erase the evidence that anyone had ever lived there, the city of Jericho was burned with fire. The ground upon which that great ancient city once had rested is purified. Even ground is purified from the moral filth that had once poisoned it. And, and, and this is a difficult thing to read. But it's the Word of God. Maybe our trouble Maybe our difficulty with this passage begins, and I'm speaking for all of us, all of us. Maybe it begins 
with a weakness in our view of what sin really is. Could it be? It is simply impossible to comprehend how heinous even one sin is in the eyes of God. It's just impossible. On top of that, we have a cloudy, distorted image of God's holiness. And so we have a problem with sin and a problem with divine holiness. Our natural tendency, and that's the the preacher included and everybody else, our natural tendency, like fallen men and those who are in the process of being redeemed from that, is that we think much less of sin and its consequences than we should, especially when our sin is in view. And so we have a dual problem. We have a less than complete view of sin and a less than complete view of the awesome holiness of God. And so we have trouble with God bringing down judgment. But what is sin? Well, the Word of God makes it painfully clear, as one man has written, that all sin has first and finally a Godward force. There is never one sin committed, despite its size, that is not an affront to a personal God. Therefore, sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. For any justice to exist in the world at all, right and wrong must be distinguished and defined, and everything that falls short of the good must be judged. God must judge sin if he is to be holy. And what is taking place at Jericho is God is showing the world how awful sin is and how holy he is. And that when judgment comes, it is for good reason. And it is never injustice. It is never wrong. It is never flawed. It is never, it is never excessive or out of bounds or out of proportion, it's always exactly just. Oftentimes we read this passage and maybe we are tempted to fall in line with the many critics of the Bible and critics of Christianity who will maintain that, oh no, you know, that may have been the way it was in the Old Testament, but that's not the God of the New Testament. With the coming of Jesus, everything, everything changes. And so the gospel is, is fundamentally opposed to all that violence. It's opposed to all that judgment. The, the gospel is about love and peace and acceptance and tolerance and, and a wide mercy that in the end will include everybody except Adolf Hitler. But what did Jesus say? In Matthew 22, 
There's a very, very interesting parable that Jesus tells. And I would, I would suspect that none of us have made this connection before. But here it is. In Matthew 22, Jesus does what he does so often. He's teaching in parables. He, he teaches in parables to, to communicate clearly to those who believe and to push away those who are rejecting him. And so he hides the secret of the kingdom. He hides the message of the gospel in parables because it's not for the casual observer. It's for those who want to do business with God. And so he tells a parable about the kingdom. And what does he say? Matthew 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have all been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. And listen to the words of Jesus. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Could it be that Jesus is reflecting on Jericho as he stands before those who are rejecting mercy, rejecting mercy, rejecting mercy, and he crafts a parable that ends in the same kind of language we find in Joshua 6. He sends his troops in, and they die, and they burn the city, and judgment day comes. And that's from the words of Jesus. Jesus, in a striking way, is using the very language of Joshua 6 to describe his own return the judgment day that Jericho foreshadows. You know, Jesus did that a lot. It strikes me a bit strange that the critics of Jesus never get around to quoting these verses, but Jesus does this frequently. He, he reaches back into the Old Testament, and he pulls out an illustration of judgment, and he says, see, this is what my coming will be like. Think of what Jesus said about Noah. And the flood. Listen to this from Matthew 24. Jesus said, Concerning that day, that is the day I come, the day of judgment, no one knows the hour. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so Jesus not only appealed to Jericho, he appealed further back to Noah. Jesus even appealed to Sodom and Gomorrah as a sign of judgment. Listen to Matthew 10. He tells his disciples, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, make a clean break, he says. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town that rejects you. So you see what Jesus often did? He takes these 
horrific images of judgment that we see in the Old Testament. And he says, those all foreshadow a greater day of wrath. Now, here's the connection. Anytime God is displaying his wrath upon sinners in the Old Testament, that's a signal, that's a signal that a greater day of judgment is coming. And that's the connection. There will come a day when, in a final sense, God's judgment will fall. And the clock of mercy, the clock of grace, strikes midnight for the human race. The last sheep of Jesus has been safely brought into the barn, and judgment will fall. If nothing else, Jericho sounds the trumpet of judgment. But I said there were two words of connection, judgment. But strangely, mercy. It's a good thing that judgment is not the only theme of this passage. There's a beautiful link here, a beautiful connection here to a deeper and richer experience of God's amazing grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. There will be, there will be someone saved from Jericho, verse 22. In the heart of this story, in the heart of this notoriously wicked city, in the carnage both morally and literally, the carnage of that town, there will be a ray of mercy, a laser beam, a welder's torch of mercy that will come from heaven and shine light into the darkness of that destruction. What is it? Verse 22. But to the men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, now every word, every word is important, go into the prostitute's house. And bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Now you have to go back to chapter 2 to realize what's going on. Remember the spies. These two men were sent in to, to spy the land. And they ran into Rahab, a woman of ill repute. When they found Rahab, it was clear that she had already been very sweetly and effectually influenced by the work of the Holy Spirit. She was ready she had heard about Israel's God. She had heard about the parting of the Red Sea. She had heard about the parting of the Jordan River. She knew that this God was real. The Lord was already at work in her. She was one of God's blessed elect. You need to see that. She was a remnant. And so in faith... She hides the spies from the Jericho authorities. So here in this wicked city where there is nothing good and nothing righteous, only rejection of mercy, the Lord's grace finds its saving mark. One of his precious sheep lived there in that awful place behind those formidable walls. And look how emphatically the note of grace is sounded. This is almost embarrassing. Verse 22, go to the prostitute's house. Verse 25, Rahab the prostitute. Every time she appears, she is Rahab the prostitute, the prostitute, the prostitute. Do you see the emphasis? 
She was not saved because she was a good person. She doesn't deserve anything from the Lord. She is a notoriously wicked person. I mean, she deserves to die with everybody else. And yet, she finds mercy. Or rather, mercy found her. Mercy came to where she lived. It found her in the condition it found her. And it redeemed her. And that same mercy that invaded Jericho, that jumped the walls of Jericho and found a woman who ran a house of prostitution, that same mercy that changed her life, that same sovereign mercy is the mercy that once found you. Rahab is you and me. We're all Rahab the prostitute. And we owe our salvation only to the mercy of God. That's why a few minutes ago as we received the Renzies, the first question, the first vow of membership is this vow. Do you believe in the sovereign mercy of God? Is the sovereign mercy of God your only hope for salvation? Because we all got into the kingdom the way Rahab did, by mercy by mercy and grace, undeserved. And look what happened to her in verse 25. Look at how real her faith was. It immediately bore fruit. It bore the fruit of repentance and obedience. Verse 25, but Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel. She became a member of the covenant community. That's incredible. A pagan, another nation, a Gentile, the worst of the Gentiles. And now she is an Israelite by mercy, by grace. Why? Because she hid the messengers. In other words, the reality that faith had changed her life, the reality that mercy had fallen upon her was that she courageously hid the messenger. She, she stopped being a resident of Jericho. She did not swear allegiance anymore to the king of Jericho. She said in her own way, Christ is Lord. And to protect his cause, even if I have to die, Christ is Lord. I no longer will follow the king of Jericho. And so she hides the spies at great risk to that of her own life and her family. And the reason she did that is because faith without works is dead. You want an example of Christian faith? James, the brother of Jesus, in his epistle, he says, look at Rahab. You want to see what real faith looks like? What living faith Looks like you want to see a model for faith? Look to Rahab the prostitute. And if that were not enough, the anonymous author of the Hebrew epistle says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith without works is dead. What a connection! What a connection! What a challenge! Likewise, the New Testament knows nothing about a faith in Christ that doesn't obey Christ. 
And I would not be a good minister if I didn't tell you that. There is no faith in Christ that doesn't bear fruit, that doesn't obey him. You can't be a Christian and swear allegiance to the king of Jericho. You can't be a Christian and be the same. You can't be a Christian and live an immoral life and disregard the commands of Jesus. You cannot do that. You will go to hell. Judgment will come. On judgment day, you will be proven to be a false disciple. You will be a a tear, not a wheat. You will be a goat, not a sheep. This is what the life of Rahab screams at us this morning, that saving faith obeys. It doesn't obey to be saved. It doesn't obey to win God's favor. It obeys. It bears fruit because it's real. It's alive. It isn't a dead faith. It's a living faith. It's it's got energy. It's got life. It's going to burst forth. And that's why the New Testament holds up Rahab as the model of saving faith. That's an incredible thing. But how good, how great, how powerful God is. How glorious is the gospel. From a prostitute to a grandmother of Jesus Christ. Because if you do a study of the genealogy of Jesus, the name Rahab will appear. She was one of the mothers of our blessed Savior. What a story. What power. What mercy. What grace. I don't have time to show you some other things. I I, I want you to see before we go that God loves to save families. It wasn't just Rahab. Because God is a God who makes covenant with his people and with families. And so all who belong to her, verse 22, all who belong to her, verse 23, all her father's house, verse 25, God delights in saving families. And the promise is for you and your children and all whom the Lord will call. The Lord delights when a mother and a father know Christ and they raise children in the church and they mark their bodies with the sign of the covenant and then they grow up with the people of God. And then one day, one day, the light will dawn on them. They will come to a place when they realize that they are a sinner and they need Christ. But that transition, that act of regeneration will happen so, so softly. And that brings glory to God. And so a covenant family. And not just a covenant family, but these are Gentiles. So what a great missionary passage this is. The the gospel comes to a pagan city because there's a pagan there that the Lord has targeted for mercy. And that's why we send missionaries. Because there may be high walls around countries. But if that's where some of God's precious elect are, he will send someone there with the message of the gospel. He will find his lost sheep, 
Mercy always gets its man or its woman. And that's why we go. Because the Lord has guaranteed that as we go, he will call He will call those whom he has set his eternal love on. He will call them to faith and repentance through the preaching of the gospel. And nation after nation will be penetrated and conquered by the message of Christ, his life and death and resurrection. What a story. What a story. And that's why we read Joshua 6. That's why we don't throw it away. That's why we have an Old Testament to show us more and more of what God did in Jesus Christ, our Lord. As a young boy growing up in our Baptist church, we would often sing that that hymn, and I found that hymn playing in my heart all week. That old, old story. Tell me that old, old story of Jesus and his love. That's what the book of Joshua is about. The old, old story of Jesus and his love. A Jesus who is king, who is judge, but who is also the fountain of mercy. May God help us believe that timeless story. Would you prepare your heart now to come to the table of the Lord?